0: The Russian Revolution of 1917 and the rise of the Soviet Union changed the face of global politics. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today is our third installment of our series, The Rise and Fall of the Soviet Union and the Lessons for Socialists. We'll be talking again with Carlos Martinez, author of The End of the Beginning, Lessons of the Soviet Collapse. He is the co-founder of the No Cold War campaign and editor of the political analysis site, inventthefuture.org. Welcome to the show, Carlos. Great to be back with you, Brian. Carlos, I wanna just recap real quick before we get into the the heart of today's show, what we accomplished in the first two episodes. And again, we're encouraging our audience to get your book, The End of the Beginning, which is a, an assessment of why the Soviet Union collapsed, or some of the key factors leading both to the rise of the Soviet Union and eventually to its collapse. And of course, we're gonna cover that with you in great detail in a subsequent episode, but we're kind of marching through Soviet history. In the first episode, we started with the, the year 1917, the Russian Revolution, why did it happen? Why were there two revolutions? We also talked in that episode with you about the great achievements of the Soviet Union in spite of the terrible international environment where almost all of the capitalist world united to defeat the Soviet Union at one time or another. In spite of all of that, the achievements, the economic, political, social achievements, monumental. We talked about that in the first episode last week. When we were talking with Vijay Prashad, we we focused on his book, Red Star Over the Third World, and we talked about the impact of the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union on the peoples of Asia and the Middle East and Africa and Latin America in particular, not that alone. But of course, part of the trajectory of the Russian Revolution was not only did the revolution happen to the east of where Marx and Engels had projected the first socialist revolutions to take place. They were thinking Western Europe. Not only did it happen there, but it it helped direct Marxism and socialism also to the east and to the south. And that's a very, very important phenomenon because Marxism becomes a global, not simply a European or European proletarian doctrine for revolution, but a global The doctrine for the global movement for liberation, both of the working class, the poor peasants, oppressed nations, colonies, etc. So that's what we did in the first two episodes. In this episode, we're going to concentrate on what might be called the great change, which was what happened in the Soviet Union between the years 1929 and 1939. The Soviet agricultural system completely shifts and changes from one of private farming in a predominantly agrarian country to rapid industrialization combined with the collectivization of agriculture in the countryside. So this is the great change where Russia and the Soviet Union go from being a predominantly agrarian country to a predominantly industrial country. Urbanization takes place throughout the country. At the same time, on the global scale, you have the worldwide capitalist economic depression, which sabotages and sinks, torpedoes the Western capitalist economies. At the very moment, the Soviet Union is rising and has this exponential economic growth rates. And then the other big factors internationally, of course, are the victory of Hitler, and the defeat of the German left in Germany, the rise of fascism in Europe. And then, of course, the looming war, the pending war, the Second Great War, the sequel to World War I, which, of course, was World War Two. And you can't look at any part of Soviet policy, domestic or foreign policy, abstracted from that international environment. So let's get started there, Carlos, where we want to talk about collectivization, industrialization, and the international situation. Stalin said in the beginning of the 1930s, perhaps, and by that time he was the undisputed or most important leader, maybe not undisputed, but certainly the most important leader within the Soviet party and within the Soviet state, Stalin said, we are 50 or 100 years behind the advanced countries, meaning the Western capitalist countries. We must make good this difference in 10 years. So he says, we're behind 50 to 100 years, but we have to catch up in 10 years. And then he says, either we do it or we shall be crushed. And again, I want to start there. And Carlos, we're not quoting Stalin because we're looking at the history through the lens of heroes and traitors, the great leaders. There are heroes, there are traitors, there are great leaders. But Stalin is now the leader of the Soviet Union and he's making the pitch for collectivization and industrialization on the basis that if they don't catch up in 10 years, that which they lack, 50 or 100 years of development, they will be crushed. Anyway, I think that's a good place to start.
1: Yeah, agreed. There was this big shift towards the end of the 1920s, in terms of the global situation and how that impacted the domestic situation in the Soviet Union, as you've said. I think in the mid 1920s, the Soviet leadership had made this assessment, this appraisal of global capitalism, that it had entered a period of relative stability after the war. It was no longer a period of revolution, at least in Europe and the Americas. Of course, the the Chinese revolution was gathering pace, Um, but World War I was over the war of intervention against Russia was over. And, you know, it was perhaps understood in the West that the Bolsheviks weren't just a flash in the pan. They weren't going to go away overnight. And there was even some possibility of normalizing relations between the Soviet Union and the capitalist world, of enjoying some sort of sort of stability, even if it was temporary, to enjoy what Lenin referred to as peaceful coexistence, and then was reused in a somewhat different context by Khrushchev after the war. And that relatively stable regional and global environment encourages slow and steady internal development because it provides a level of breathing space. You know, the NEP, the new economic policy, with its mixed economy, relative freedom for small capitalists, for rich farmers, might be expected to carry on for a long time because it was essentially quite a relaxed environment with a minimum of class struggle. The rich were allowed to continue being rich as long as they accepted the basic socialist trajectory of society. And I think that's not entirely unlike China under reform and opening up. And actually, that parallel is important. I think it's something that we could perhaps discuss in future episodes, because China's reform was also predicated on this idea of relative stability in the external environment. So, you know, it felt like, I think, quite a positive environment. Living standards are improving. There's a lot of intellectual freedom. From a cultural point of view, the revolution was moving forward. There was a tremendous amount of enthusiasm, of creative energy, of experimentation. There was an explosion of popular culture, mass literacy, folk music, theatre, youth culture, and so on. And then, as you've alluded to, the big change in the global environment was, of course, the biggest economic crisis in the history of capitalism, starting with the Wall Street crash of 1929, leading to mass unemployment, the Great Depression. Actually, the Soviets were the only ones that had really foreseen this, you know, and they talked about it as early as 1927 and the 15th Congress of the CPSU. But that very quickly changed the overall mood, the overall dynamic. It overturned the sense of stability because you know, being Marxists, the Bolsheviks knew very well that capitalist crisis tends to be accompanied by certain social phenomena, one of those being the rise of the left, as working-class people, who always bear the brunt of the crisis, realise that their survival is predicated on collective organisation, on collective struggle. But in response to the rise of the left, then the capitalist class is perfectly capable of resorting to violence and coercion in order to protect itself, in order to protect the basic structure of the capitalist system. And as we know only too well, that coercion, numerous times in the 20th century, took the form of fascist paramilitary force. So this period of relative stability was transformed quite suddenly into a powder keg, into a a very precarious, very fragile situation. And of course, that hangs off capitalist crisis is war, being the ultimate means to kickstart an economy, uh, what Mandel later referred to as military Keynesianism, and a scramble for land, a scramble for resources, for markets, for cheap labour. And the danger of a new world war in Europe was increasingly well understood by this point. And of course, the basic conditions had been set for it by the Treaty of Versailles following World War I. So this is the big shift that's happening externally to the Soviet Union. In foreign policy terms, it led to a major turn to the left with the Comintern adopting class against class, advocating a complete break with social democracy and so on. In domestic policy, there was also a turn to the left in terms of rapid industrialization, rapid collectivization. And I, th- I think we're going to talk about the foreign policy and the common turn line a bit later. And you know, I think ultimately it turned out to be incorrect and to not accurately reflect the actual balance of forces in the West. But the domestic changes, I think, were indispensable. The gradualism of the NEP era had ceased to be viable. The Soviets knew perfectly well that they would be targeted in any world war. In a scramble for land, in a scramble for resources, there's no way the imperialist powers would leave this enormous landmass of Russia, Central Asia, the Caucasus alone. And, you know, as you've quoted, Stalin said, we catch up with the advanced capitalist countries within 10 years or we'll be crushed. He made that remark in 1931. Ten years later, The Nazis launched their onslaught on Russia. So whatever one thinks of Stalin, you sort of have to accept that this comment was pretty spot on, a very accurate appraisal of the overall global situation and the Soviet Union's place within it. So that I think is the global context for the very frenetic socialist construction of the 1930s.
0: One thing that many observers, certainly from the left, who unfortunately they're simply partisans for one camp or another within those who were the leadership of the Soviet Union and there was a great political struggle inside the Soviet Union following the death of Lenin a very unfortunate early death of Lenin he dies at age 54 he had really become disabled by age 52 in 1922 and so there's a there's a struggle for leadership following Lenin's death and it's not simply a struggle between these very large personalities it's also lots of policy issues are at stake. And so there's Stalin on one hand, Bukharin, Kaminov, Zinoviev, Trotsky. I mean, those five in particular, there were others too, but those five in particular who were like the central leaders of the Politburo, they're fighting with each other over influence and over policy. And so of course, Trotsky, announces his grouping as the left opposition. Sinoviev and Kaminov are initially with Stalin and then break from Stalin in 1926 and join with Trotsky in the left opposition and then they break from Trotsky later, the two of them. Then you have Bukharin who is advocating a prolongation of the new economic policy, meaning a very liberal policy towards the countryside not collectivization, in fact, advocating private farming for perhaps decades, maybe 50 years, maybe a century to come. So there's all of these struggles going on within the leadership, but there is essentially a unity around the need for collectivization and industrialization. There really isn't a dispute. When you look at Trotsky's writings or Stalin's writings, they're fighting with each other over... Implementation over tactics, over emphasis, over tempo, speed of these processes. But there's no dispute that this process of collectivization and industrialization is, in fact, existential to the existence or continued existence of the revolution, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You know, everyone was agreed on the need for industrialization, everyone was agreed on the need for collectivization of the land. And the the fundamental disagreement was about pace. And as you've said, Bukharin and his comrades, people like Rykov, people like Tomsky, very much emphasized harmonious relations between the town and country, between different social forces. They advocated for what they called a snail's pace of development and and thought that the new economic policy could go on more or less indefinitely. Meanwhile, the left opposition, as you've said, including people like Trotsky Zinoviev Kamenev, wanted much faster development, and, and, and they were pushing for collectivization and industrialization as early as 1925. And of course, you know, you've got ideological disagreements, but those are rooted in material reality in the external environment and the domestic environment. And, and we've talked about the changes externally. Um, by 1927 or so, industrially, production is you know, at least back to pre-war levels and the level of support for the Bolsheviks is quite high in the cities. By pre-war, you're talking about by
0: 1927, production is now back to the level that it was in 1914. Exactly. So, it shows how far backward everything had gone after the revolution, World War One, the Civil War. So, it's finally back to 1914, only in 1927.
1: Yeah, and that's the effect of a decade of war, right? But food production continues to be a massive problem. You know The poor and middle peasantry, who constitute the vast majority of the peasantry, just don't have sufficient land and draught animals and basically no machinery. So any surplus that they're able to provide for the cities, which of course you need to lay the ground for industrialization, is very limited. You know, you've got a million or so wealthier peasants, Kulaks, but they're in a sort of protracted struggle with the government over the restrictions of the NEP. They want to be able to exploit more labor. They want to be able to buy more land. They want to be able to get higher prices for their goods, and they want to pay lower prices for the goods that they want from the city for machinery and and so on. So you've got this relatively small group of wealthy peasants who've got quite a lot of land, who exploit other people's labor, that are increasingly holding the whole country to ransom and quite deliberately slowing down the pace of modernization. And this becomes a very difficult problem to solve, the food problem. You know, you need the countryside to produce a surplus if you're going to industrialize. You know, The more workers you've got in factories producing steel and iron, not to mention tanks and guns that you know pretty well that you're going to need, the more food you need to transfer from the countryside to the cities. In a different situation, you might try and solve that problem by importing food. But, of course, the Soviet Union was subjected to financial sanctions from the West, so it can't generate sufficient foreign exchange to do that. I mean, the U.S. didn't even recognize the Soviet Union until 1933. So by this point, by the, you know, say, 27, 28, the issue of food has become pretty acute with a combination of bad harvests and then sabotage and non-cooperation by the rich peasants. So that's the food issue. Combined with all of that, in terms of the material basis and the ideological struggle, the debate about whether you can build socialism in one country is more or less over. The question is more or less settled. The working class in Europe hasn't taken power. Revolution isn't on the cards for the foreseeable future. So it's understood that for the Soviet Union, the choice is either we build socialism or we accept counter-revolution, we capitulate to capitalism and imperialism essentially we're on our own, you know, we better build socialism because no one else is going to. So that provides, I think, the domestic context for fast tracking, collectivization and industrialization. As you mentioned, the Bolsheviks had long proposed and agreed on collective ownership and management of the land. And that's something that's part of Marxist economics, right? You know, that goes back to Marx and Engels. Lenin had considered private ownership of the land and the breaking up of the big estates and parceling small farms out to individual farmers As something of a step backwards you know that's what they did after the revolution because that's the promise a commitment that they'd made to the peasantry but it was a concession that was made to win mass rural support for the revolution but he always pointed out you know firstly small private plots are not a step forward in terms of productivity in terms of mechanization in terms of the socialization of labor and second the existence of private farming and small-scale production is associated with class forces that tend in the direction of capitalism. You know, to quote Lenin, he said, it gives birth to capitalism and the bourgeoisie constantly, daily, hourly, with elemental force. So collectivization was always part of the plan, but the food crisis in 27-28 and the changing external environment and the need to industrialise very quickly created this urgency to increase productivity, increase output, and also to gain the support and solidify the support of the poor peasants, the millions at the bottom of the hierarchy in the countryside, for whom collective farming was was a big win, you know, it was a huge upgrade in terms of their status and conditions of life. And to get that enthusiastic support from poor peasants, you've built this core constituency in the countryside, you've got cadres, you've got support for the revolutionary process, and you've In so doing, you kind of mitigated what was a somewhat antagonistic relationship between town and country at the time. And remember, the working class at that point in the Soviet Union was by far the minority. So, strengthening the alliance with a big section of the peasantry was of crucial importance.
0: I also want to mention to people that because of the civil war that followed the revolution, another three million people had died. A great big part of the working class that made the revolution in 1917 had been dispersed as a consequence of that war. The people had gone back to the countryside. There wasn't food to feed people in the cities. And as industrialization starts to pick up in 19 in the 1920s and by 1927, as you mentioned, it's back to the pre-war levels, the character of the proletariat in Russia has also shifted. More and more people are newly arrived They were peasants or farmers the year or two before, and now they're coming into the cities, and that continues to be a a phenomenal and important part of the process throughout the 1930s with the urbanization and industrialization. It's really folks from the countryside coming to the cities for the first time and becoming factory workers, and so the level of political development, the level of political consciousness, all of that—it's been shifted profoundly, and in some ways, in a negative way, because that new proletariat hasn't gone through the process of making the 1917 revolution or all of the earlier struggles. But I want to also emphasize the thing that you're talking about in terms of the relationship between the peasantry or the countryside and the urban proletariat. It was key to Lenin's strategic conception of revolution. Lenin coined the formula, of the democratic dictatorship of the proletariat and peasantry in 1905, emphasizing, in fact, the primacy of the peasantry in Russia. Mao, of course, differently, but also emphasized the role of the peasantry in the Chinese Revolution. That, too, became a point of dispute and contention between Lenin and Trotsky and others, but this was always primary for the Bolshevik strategy. And then in 1917, in addition to the proletariat in St. Petersburg or Moscow rising up, you have this spontaneous peasant revolt and lenin says the only way we can really win is to make an alliance with the peasants and what do the peasants want what do the poor in the countryside want they want land and we're going to give them land we're going to so you have this phenomena of the bolsheviks adopting a non kind of a non-communist policy towards the land which is to break up the land or allow it to be broken up into small parcels which the peasants want, and the poor peasants now feel, yes, we have land, but you can't use tractors on small parcels. You can't use industrial farming techniques on small parcels. And eventually, it leads to a food crisis. And of course, the rich or better off peasants, the kulaks, as you mentioned, are basically carrying out a grain strike against the cities by 1928. And so famine or the threat of famine starts to reemerge for the Soviet leadership. And it's at that time, if you read the writings of, again, Bukharin, Stalin, Trotsky, Kamenev, Zinoviev, all of them, there's a sudden shift in the need, the urgent need to collectivize, the urgent need to deal with the food problem and the class division in the countryside. And in some ways, what begins in 1930 and 31, this rapid sort of amazing tempo of industrial development accompanied by collectivization, in some ways it resembles, not exactly of course, because no analogy is perfect, otherwise it wouldn't be an analogy, what Mao tried to do with the Great Leap Forward in 1959, which is to rapidly catch up, to, to have the pace of development go so fast that in some ways it may outstrip what society can actually offer or provide or at least do it in a way that doesn't include very sharp social rifts. In other words, you're breaking the routine that has existed for centuries and you're doing it almost overnight and it's all of this economic dislocation. But at the end of the day, Carlos, the Soviet industrialization is amazing. And the exponential growth rates in the 1930s, I wanna talk about them. In some ways, they not only bringing the Soviet Union into the modern world, into the industrial world, but they're happening at the same time that the industrial economies of capitalism are contracting. So to the extent that socialism becomes conflated with a state, meaning the Soviet Union, when the state is starting to have great successes relative to capitalism, it makes socialism, conflated with the state, more and more attractive, and communism starts to grow. In the United States, the Communist Party went from like ten thousand in 1929 to a hundred thousand by 1939, and all around the world, the 1930s seemed to demonstrate that yes, socialism and a planned economy with public ownership is a superior system because unlike the capitalist societies like America, where one out of every four workers is unemployed, where starvation is lurking in spite of all of the abundance, in spite of all of the abundance of capitalism, it's the Soviet Union, a poor country that's emerging and becoming a greater and greater economic power. That seems to validate Marxism. Again, because it's conflating with the victories or advances of the socialist state. So that's one dynamic. I want you to talk about that, the growth of communism and how it really spread socialism. And then after that, I wanna talk about, of course, the other part of the international environment, which is what's taking place in Germany. So go ahead.
1: Thanks, Brian. And you brought up a number of fascinating points there. and I. There's a few threads that I'd, I'd quite like to pick up if you don't mind, including sure. on, on collectivization, because it's actually a very important and widely misunderstood and misinterpreted part of Soviet history. And there's no doubt that, you know, it was a very messy and difficult process. And we talk about how the decision was made that we needed to speed up collectivization. But I don't think anyone foresaw how quickly that would actually take place. That Literally, in around half a year, from late 1929 to the spring of 1930, half of the land was collectivized. And you know, it slowed down significantly after that, but an incredibly quick start. And it was, you know, there was an intense and at times quite violent class struggle because, okay, you know, by and large, the poor peasantry was very much in favor of the process. But the kulaks, as we talked about before, were viscerally opposed to it. So, you know, you've got the one side, you've got the working class, you've got the forces of the state, you've got the poor peasants and part of the middle peasantry, the middle peasantry being by far the largest overall section of the rural population. And they want to collectivise the land, they want to share resources, they want to create sufficient surplus for industrialization, modernise the Soviet Union, and so on. On the other hand, you've got these rich peasants, maybe a million in total, and part of the middle peasantry, so maybe a few more million, that are really aiming to protect some level of privilege and wealth that they've got. And and they're willing to protect that using force of arms. And hence, this class struggle became violent. And, you know, I think we shouldn't be embarrassed to say that the state responded in places with definitely disproportionate force and significant excess, you know, far half of the land to be collectivized in the space of a few months was just much faster than anyone had previously imagined the pace of collectivization. And much of it was done on a voluntary basis, as it was supposed to be. But there was also definitely cases of forced collectivization, to the extent that even Stalin in, in March 1930 issues his pamphlet Dizzy with Success, where he calls for an end to excesses and he calls for an end to coercion in this process. but. Bourgeois history has kind of only got one narrative on this, you know, it's excess, it's the use of force, it's the mistreatment of the kulaks. And the kulaks, of course, are presented as these charming, benevolent people, humble peasants that just want to farm their little plots of land the way they've done peacefully for centuries. And, you know, it's a slightly bizarre caricature. And I don't know if you read Walter Rodney's book on the, the Russian Revolution, which finally came out a couple of years ago, but he points out that the kulaks were the local exploiters. They had lots of land, plenty of draft animals. They lent money at shocking rates of interest. They settled debts by taking people's land. You know, And in pursuit of their broader aims, they were perfectly willing to withhold food from the towns, which meant effectively starving the working class. I guess you talked about China. The equivalent class in China before liberation was the rich peasantry, the cornerstone of the feudal economy. And this wasn't a group that was treated with particular kindness by the Chinese revolution. And actually Walter Rodney points out that a lot of the violence that was perpetrated against these rich peasants was carried out, not by agents of the state, but by poor peasants in the name of class warfare, in the name of revenge. So the purpose of collectivization, as we talked about, was to A, end exploitation in the countryside, B, increase food production, creating farms large enough that they could mechanize that they can introduce modern technology. This was a core component of the movement towards socialism, which meant raising the living conditions of the entire population. And we have to say, you know, if you want to judge it on the basis of its results, on the basis of of its outcome, we have to say that it was to a significant degree successful, because by the end of the 1930s, 10 years after the start of the collectivization process, the food problem had fundamentally been solved for the first time in Russian history. You know, grain crops were much, much higher than they had been a decade previously. The wooden plough was replaced with the tractor. And meanwhile, the process of industrialization was completed. The Soviet Union went from being a relatively backward country, far behind the European powers, to being an advanced country capable of, for example, defeating the Nazi war machine. So. You know we need to situate this topic of collectivization within the broader context and overall timeline of socialist construction and preparation for war. I mean, even Isaac Deutscher, who was very critical of collectivization, says, yes, okay, the costs were very high, but he uses the word astounding to describe the rewards of the process because it brought the Soviet Union into the 20th century at last.
0: Very interestingly, Carlos, and something that you well know is that when the, when the Soviet Union was in its period of dissolution or unraveling in those terrible years in the late 1980s and 1990, there was a referendum and the referendum asked the people of the Soviet Union, do you want to dissolve the Soviet Union? Do you want to break it up? Do you want to end this project? And the people who initiated the referendum were certain that you know, with all of the confusion that was reigning supreme in the Soviet Union at that time, people would vote yes, let's break this up. And in fact, people voted no, 70% voted no. But the part of the population that voted no in the highest numbers were the people in the collective farms. And when you think about it, and I want just want people in the West who may be more disproportionately watching this show, think about what it meant to be a poor peasant in the 1920s, where if it rained, maybe you had crops, but if it didn't, you didn't have crops or food, anything to sell, and you starved. And in the collective farms and in the state farms, you were guaranteed the right to health care and whether it rained or whether it didn't rain, whether the produce was great or not, your essential needs in life were taken care of. You weren't completely dependent on whether it rained or didn't rain, whether there was drought or not a drought, like the insecurities of life in the countryside for the poor removed. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that now. I just wanted to make mention of it that it was the collective farmers who voted in the largest numbers against the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1990. I want to go back though to a couple points that you made and then I want to move as we discussed earlier into the topic of fascism because the victory of Hitler in Germany shifts and changes everything. It is the fundamental significant element in global politics and certainly in the foreign policy calculations of the Soviet leadership. But you mentioned the idea of socialism in one country. That was a point of political dispute, again, between Stalin and Trotsky. Trotsky was arguing that Soviets can only continue and thrive as a revolutionary process if the revolution expands, especially to countries with more advanced economies that could be like an aid and assistance to the Soviet Union. And that was a point he was making the argument that Stalin had turned away from the revolutionary path and from the path of international revolution and was adopting a conservative policy. But as you mentioned, the issue of socialism in one country, while it presented itself internally amongst the Bolsheviks or these leaders as a theoretical or political or strategic dispute. The reality is it was a fact of life. I mean, it didn't really emerge as a theoretical concept so much as just the reality that the Soviets in 1917 and 1918, and all of them, you know, not just Lenin, but Stalin, Trotsky, Kamenev, Zinoviev, they were all hoping for revolutions in the West. They were all hoping that a more advanced capitalist economy would come onto their side through proletarian revolution. But the reality is the Hungarian revolution was defeated. The German revolution of 1918 defeated. Another attempt at revolution in 21 and 23 in Germany, the most advanced capitalist economy in continental Europe defeated. And so it becomes really clear by the mid-1920s that there's not going to be revolution in the West. Maybe later in China, Korea, Vietnam, but not in these major capitalist economies. So in many ways, whatever side you took in this debate about socialism in one country, the reality is whether you were for it or against it, there was only one socialist government and it was isolated. And it was also in a place that had a vast space. Russia by landmass was the biggest country in the world. It was an Asian power and a European power. And so because it had space, it had resources, and because it was able to retain power, the communist-led government was able to retain power, it was able to use some of those internal elements to grow and not to be crushed, not to be defeated. And certainly... When you look at what happened with industrialization and collectivization, I'm just going to give you a few figures and then we'll wrap up this part of the discussion and and go on to the rise of fascism. By between 1928 and 1937, cast iron, the production, rose by 439% in the Soviet Union. Steel, which is essential for industrialization, increased by 412%. Rolled ferrous metals, 382%, coal, you know, 370%. You can keep going. It's not just industrial, but also agricultural production is you know through the roof. Yeah. And so instead of being by 1939 an agrarian backward society that was then subsequently invaded by the most advanced economy and biggest army in continental Europe, that would be the German army. The Soviet Union was now an industrial power. So, the thing that Stalin said, we must do this in 10 years, it actually happened.
1: Exactly. And, you know, from being a backward, underdeveloped society to becoming an advanced, developed industrial society and to have completed this process faster than any other country in history is undeniably a remarkable achievement. You know, much of the Russian Empire before 1917 was approximately the same level of development as England in the 15th century. You know, in most of the countryside of Russia and the Russian Empire, feudalism and backwardness reigned supreme. So in that period of time, in essentially that decade, from 1929 to 1939, Soviet industrial output caught up with the major capitalist powers, as you've said. Agriculture became modernized and mechanized. The collective farms were supplied with tractors, with combine harvesters, with fertilizer. The working class grew to become the majority of the population. An industrial base was built not just in the major cities in the West, but east of the Urals. You know, There's something that literally hadn't existed before, built up from nothing. And this fast-track industrial revolution, you can call it, they achieved in a decade what had taken the capitalist countries at least a century or centuries to do. And furthermore, let's not forget that the capitalist countries, Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, Holland, Japan, had relied on an absolutely brutal exploitation of child labor, immigrant labor. A great deal of their starting capital was built on the profits of colonialism, slavery, plunder. So the Soviet Union, not only has it had this industrial revolution in a fraction of the time, but it's done it without relying on slavery and colonialism, and while putting the children in schools for the first time rather than factories. So it may have been a very tough process. It may not have been a very chilled time, but actually it compares pretty favorably with the equivalent processes in Britain, in France, in Germany, and the US. And, you know, people have got this caricature of the Soviet Union in the 1930s that it was all, you know, political repression, violent collectivization, plotting amongst different factions of the Bolsheviks, purges, Moscow trials, and so on. And I don't doubt that life in the top flight of the CPSU was very intense, and there were extremely bitter and indeed deadly struggles. And there was the suspension of some components of the rule of law, and there was, I think, a level of collective paranoia, which wasn't entirely unjustified given the circumstances. But for ordinary working people, there was actually a blossoming of cultural life, a blossoming of education, of participatory democracy, people getting involved in running their workplaces, running their communities. There were groundbreaking attempts to improve the position of women in society, groundbreaking attempts to address racial ethnic, national discrimination. The Soviet people became known as bookworms in that period, as theatergoers, and that wasn't limited to intellectuals. Culture was opened up for the masses, and this was something that was unique to the Soviet Union at that time. There was a concerted push to create a class of kind of worker intellectuals, people from working-class families who then went to technical colleges or went to university to develop expertise. Contrast that with the state's attitude towards the working class in the capitalist societies of that era. You know, literally two million peasants trained to become tractor drivers. And there was a level of enthusiasm on the part of the working class that they were building something to be proud of. you probably come across John Scott's book, Behind the Urals, he was an American engineer, and he goes to work in the Urals and, and he says, tens of thousands of people were enduring the most intense hardships in order to build blast furnaces. And many of them did it willingly, with boundless enthusiasm, which infected me from the day of my arrival. You know, In terms of education, in terms of literacy, the literacy rate in the Central Asian republics, even at the end of the NEP, was sort of between 5 and 20%. By the end of the 1930s, the vast majority of people in the Soviet Union were literate, including in places like Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, where literacy had been kind of practically non-existent before the revolution. So it's precisely in the 1930s, in this period of terrible repression and violence, that tens of millions of people get a basic education for the first time. The 1936 constitution specified equal rights for races and nationalities, and talks about that advocacy of racism or national exclusiveness or contempt being punishable by law. This is a full 40 years before Britain has a Race Relations Act that offers that level of legal protection for the basic equality of human beings. And what was the situation of non-white people in the United States at that time, subjected to to lynchings, to segregation, and so on? And Paul Robeson, as you know, visited the Soviet Union for the first time in 1934, which is the height of this supposedly really terrible period. And he toured the country. He talks in his autobiography about witnessing firsthand Yakuts and Uzbeks and other formerly oppressed nations. He talks about leaping ahead to the heights of knowledge and their ancient cultures blooming in new and greater richnesses. You know, he was, he was so blown away by the lack of racial discrimination that he sent his son to school in Moscow because he didn't want his son to experience the racism that he had experienced as a child. You know, and this is Paul Robeson. We're not talking about someone who was soft on racism or someone who could be easily duped. It's a hyper-intelligent person, a trained lawyer, an extraordinary linguist, someone who's dedicated his life to ending prejudice and oppression, he toured the Soviet Union at length, was blown away by it, and felt it was a better place for his son to get an education than the US or Western Europe. And again, Deutsche talks about this in his biography of Stalin. He, And he sort of gives away his own racial prejudice a little bit, you know, which is, you could say, a product of his time or whatever. But he talks about how Russian culture lost in depth during this period, but it gained in breadth, i.e. culture and learning were opened up to the masses for the first time. And he sort of grudgingly accepts there's something positive in this. And he says, you know, this meant a relative eclipse of European Russia in favor of the backward Asiatic periphery. So he's kind of complaining about this eastward shift in the basic cultural orientation of the country. And you talked about earlier, and you talked with Vijay as well about the international eastward shift of the communist movement. And there was also a cultural and intellectual eastward shift within the Soviet Union itself. And that's one of the things that the bourgeois forces in Russia were actually very bitter about, you know the referendum that you that you referenced a few minutes ago that was held in 1991 on whether to keep the soviet union together the other social group that voted massively in favor of maintaining the union was the central asian states you know they were voting 90% plus in favor because they'd seen this incredible uplift through that 80 year experience yeah
0: very very important points and again the the soviet union you know, we talked with VJ last episode last week about the impact of Lenin's, you know, call for self-determination and the Russian Revolution coming to the aid of people who are colonized or semi-colonized and the fact that Comintern agents went all around the world to format revolution. In the case of the United States, when the Comintern, the Communist International has that Congress, the sixth Congress that you mentioned, and they're now predicting the destabilization of the Western capitalist world at the period of capitalist stability is over. This is, they're proclaiming a new era of revolution. And it's called the third period for those who want to do some more research. It's, you know, marked by ultra leftism that has a damaging impact in some ways. And we're going to talk about that right now, actually, with what happens in Germany with the rise of fascism, because the line of the communist international during this leftist turn when collectivization and industrialization move the country to the left internally, the Soviet promoted line is that the social democrats who are obviously not revolutionaries and obviously part by then of the capitalist system in Germany are as big of an enemy as the fascists. And so there's no effort really to build a united front with the social democratic workers Along with the communist workers who made up the vast majority, far larger than the Nazi pro Nazi population in 1931 or 1932, even when the Nazis were starting to get stronger. So there was a detriment there. But in the United States, during that leftist period of of the international, the Soviet or the Comintern says. The struggle of black people has in America has to be elevated and become primary for the communist class struggle in the United States. The, the idea that black people constitute an oppressed nation within the boundaries of the capitalist United States and that self-determination should exist for people in the so-called black belt in the Southern states where black people constituted a majority. All of these were very revolutionary and far-reaching Uh, and important steps forward for the US left. And a lot of that is also the outcome of this leftist period between 1929 and 1933, 1934. But then, Carlos, in 1933, the German working class does not come to power, instead the Nazis come to power. And there's not a Nazi revolution or a Nazi counter-revolution in terms of how Hitler becomes chancellor. He's invited into the position by the bourgeoisie, by the right center politicians, by the German capitalists who have decided they're going to make a deal with Hitler. And the deal is you attack the left, you crush the left, you crush the unions and the socialists and the communists, but especially the communists and uh you know we'll have a we'll have a treaty we'll have an alliance and they thought they could maybe tame hitler well in a way hitler tamed them after he had destroyed the left but also he was very much in the pocket of the german industrialists he was very much in tandem with the german capitalist class and even when germany invades france in 1940 Under the leadership of Hitler, it turns out that the French bourgeoisie also prefers to work with the German fascist leadership uh, rather than the French workers. And the French bourgeoisie capitulates to the German invasion. All of this shows that the tendency towards fascism is actually an organic part, not of some sort of just like a lunatic part of the population that becomes mad or insane with fascist ideology, but it becomes a resort of capitalism at a moment when capitalism is racked by crisis. And 1930s was a period of crisis, of of class struggle that couldn't be managed and, and class struggle that continued to grow. And because the communists were unable to take the power in Germany, the German bourgeoisie says, well, look, we can put an end to all of this class struggle by imposing on the German working class a fascist regimentation and the destruction of the left. And that seems very attractive to the capitalists all over Europe. And in fact, all of Europe becomes fascist, all of continental Europe. And even in the United States, a big part of the US ruling class was very pro Hitler. It was in World War II that they turned against Germany. But in the 1930s, it was John and Alan. John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, who became CIA and Secretary of State in the the Cold War. There was the Bush family, the Kennedy family, of course, Henry Ford. They were all pro-German, and the pro-German sentiment was very strong in the United States bourgeoisie in the ruling class. But however it happened, the effect of Hitler's victory in 1933 is a clear indicator to the Soviet leadership that war is coming. And they start to appeal, they switch off of the left orientation, the, le- the orientation of like revolution is now possible. The third period comes to an end by the seventh and final Congress of the Communist International, which, you know, of course, that's the ascension of Dmitryov, the hero from Bulgaria who had been put on trial by the Nazis for the Reichstag fire. He becomes the formal leader of the Communist International. But now the line of the International sort of reflecting the new attitude of the Soviet leadership is that we need to have a united front against fascism or what might be called in some places like in France, the popular front against fascism, where social democratic and liberal and communist alliances are formed to stop the ascension of the right, the fascists. And the Soviets are looking to England or to France or to the United States and hoping, knowing that the war is now coming, that there could be a collective security agreement whereby the Soviet Union stands with the Western capitalist democracies. Not because they idealize them, but because they have a common foe, fascism in the the personality of Hitler and the country of Germany or Italy or Spain. But that doesn't happen. And so I want to help our audience who may not understand this history show the dilemma of the Soviet Union now. They're moving towards unity with the bourgeois social democrats or social democrats with bourgeois liberalism, but it's not reciprocal. It is in the case of some of the social democrats. There was the Leon Blum popular front government in France. But elsewhere, Britain, no, United States, no, France, no. Anyway, let's just talk about now the new dilemma that's facing the Soviet leadership after the ascension of Hitler.
1: Sure, Um, and I just wanted to quickly sort of reiterate what you were saying there about the nature of fascism, because I think that's a really important point for people to get their heads around because it still resonates and it's still relevant, which is the, you know, the, the basic political objective of the capitalist class and of the basic nature of the capitalist state is to reproduce capitalist production relations, is to reproduce a situation in which one group of people owns and deploys capital and another group of people, the vast majority of the population, is forced to sell its labour power, its ability to work for the other group, for capitalists. And the ordinary, what Lenin described as the best political shell for capitalism, is, you know, the the democratic republic. But where that's not possible in a situation of crisis, then that's when fascism comes to play. That's when violent coercion comes into play. You know, there's carrot and stick. The carrot is sort of social democracy. It's reforms. It's relatively better pay. It's relatively better conditions. The stick... Is fascism its violent repression, and so to just outline some of this process from the late 1920s and the shift to the mid and late 30s, you know, to to some degree, I think this 1929 line of the common turn, the the class against class line that you talked about, I think it, it tended to underestimate the dangers of fascism and underestimate how much worse fascism was. than than regular capitalist democracy and it tended to overestimate the European communist movement's ability to fight fascism alone. Obviously, it's easy to say these things with hindsight, but Hitler came to power, you know, and when the only social force with the strength and the size to prevent that would have been the united German working class. But the social democrats refused to work with the communists and as you said, you know the right social democrats thought they could establish some sort of modus vivendi with Hitler. Meanwhile, the communists were stuck in this position of saying that well, social democracy is the twin of fascism, and referring to it as social fascism and so on. Which, as a slogan, it's you know it's probably got some agitational value in a revolutionary situation where you're trying to persuade workers to join the side of revolution rather than bourgeois reformism, but tactically, in this situation, where the, you've got a clear shared enemy of fascism, it was an incorrect slogan. Um, and to just go off off topic a little bit, um, I think it continues to be a slightly problematic line in the left, in that people sort of hate social democracy so much that they sometimes forget that fascism is worse. And one... Current example of that, I would say, is this assessment of some people on the left of the Chilean elections that just took place on the weekend, where you've got people saying that, you know, there's no meaningful difference between Boric, the the social democratic candidate, and Kast, who's a neo-fascist. Anyway, sorry, back to the script. No,
0: but excellent point. I'm glad you mentioned it. And there's many, many other examples where the left is just wrong. Some parts of the left are wrong on this. And and we could see in Germany that it the consequences can be devastating because the German social democrats and the German communists, it would have been hard to form a united front, but if they could have, there was the material basis to defeat Nazism before it took power. And not doing that in allowing Hitler to come to power, I mean, we don't even need to hardly say how bad that was because people know that part. But again, yes, we're talking about hindsight, which is much clearer, but yeah, I think you're right. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it. It's really an important tactical and strategic issue for our movement. Go ahead, though.
1: Thanks. Yeah, by the mid-30s, the reality of fascism in power is very stark and very clearly understood. And the International Communist Movement responded to that with the policy of, as you say, the united front, which was described by Dmitrov as being establishing the unity of action of all sections of the working class in the struggle against fascism. And then that's also connected to the evolving outlines of the war, which is becoming clearer now what the next world war looks like. Nazi Germany was very obviously and explicitly an aggressive expansionist power. Hitler made no secret of his desire to conquer Russia. So the Soviet Union's basic security concerns must have been a motivating factor here as well in the United Front policy of building maximum unity against fascism and war, which have kind of coalesced into this single aggressive and imperialistic force. And then you've you've mentioned connected with the United Front, which represented the unity of the working class. You've got the Popular Front pursued in Spain and in France, which represented the unity of the working class with the democratic sections of the capitalist class, a cross-class alliance against fascism. So, yeah, absolutely. In terms of the common terms policy, there was a dramatic shift. They stopped talking about social fascism. Every time they used the word democracy to describe the Western powers, they didn't insert the adjective bourgeois in front of it. You know, They talked about the need to uphold democracy in the face of fascism. And given the rise of fascism, its record in power, and the very serious threat of war, I think these these policy shifts make perfect sense. Right. So then let's move the clock forward because
0: the effort to have a united front or a popular front in the case of France and Spain, it does create a you know a success in France. There's the Leon Blum government. But ultimately, the bourgeoisie in Europe turns away. 100% away from the sort of social democratic option for bourgeois rule and opts for fascism. And of course the constant aggression of by Hitler and by the Germans is forcing the question you know what side are you on? Where do you stand? And at Munich, Chamberlain is denounced later for appeasement, but basically it's clear that Britain, and the french bourgeoisie see the war is coming and they know that hitler is going to you know sort of reclaim german colonies or territories or take new markets you know to overcome the sort of diminished position of german imperialism after its defeat in world war 1 this is the comeback for german imperialism and they were like okay the war is coming Let's find a way to have Hitler fight the Soviets so they don't fight France or Britain. So it's clear by 1938 at the Munich conference, when Hitler is allowed to seize Czechoslovakia, when the British make it clear, the British bourgeoisie, Chamberlain's so-called appeasement policy makes it clear that they're not going to stop the Germans as long as the Germans march east, not west east towards the Soviet Union. This is, by the way, why the Russian government today is so alarmed by NATO moving east constantly. This is the historic parallel, is exactly what happened in the late 1930s before World War II was the Western powers were moving east or allowing Hitler to move east. Anyway, that's. we'll come back to that later, but the Soviets have a dilemma now. The key and cornerstone element of Soviet foreign policy under Lenin, later under Stalin, but I'd say by all Soviet leadership, at least before Gorbachev, was they viewed the world imperialist system as implacably hostile, as wanting to overthrow the Soviet Union to carry out what the language we now use of regime change, and that they were determined not to fight all of the imperialists at once, that they would look for divisions and contradictions within the capitalist imperialist governments to make tacit or tactical alliances with some, so as to prevent all of them uniting as one, as an imperialist united front against the Soviet Union. So Stalin's preference was clearly to unite with Britain and France. And in response, they told him no. So the reason I'm saying that is it's the context for the surprise announcement in 1939 that behind the scenes, when the Soviets were being rebuffed by the Western so-called democratic capitalists, German imperialism, Nazism had opened a diplomatic door to the Soviets. And after a great deal of waiting, the Stalin leadership in the Soviet Union starts to allow that door to be opened. And secret negotiations are taking place. There's lots of people can read about this. I think even Deutscher's book on Stalin, which is, you know, I'm not endorsing the book, but I think his presentation on the evolution and the detailed evolution of Soviet-German negotiations and why eventually a non-aggression pact is signed by Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, how that happens. E. H. Carr, by the way, has an, another important small volume called Soviet German Relations, 1919 to 1939. E. H. Carr, British scholar. I would encourage people who want to know more about this to, to read that slender volume, but very, very useful. Anyway, it takes the world by surprise, certainly. And it takes a big part of the left by surprise because the left since the 7th Congress, since 1935, has been promoting a united front against fascism. And the left, meaning the communist left, is also looking to Moscow as the center, the center of the world communist movement, the center of the communist international. And suddenly, without you know advance notice, the announcement comes that Germany and the Soviet Union are now in some sort of alliance, the non-aggression pact. And it has a, a very profound impact in the United States, half of the members, maybe half of the communist party USA who had been recruited during the anti-fascist period of nineteen thirty five to thirty nine they leave the party. They're like, "What the heck? Parts of the Trotskyist movement desert the Fourth international too and say, "Oh look, this proves the point that Stalin and Hitler are just twin despots. they're you know tyrannical." dictators. There's an equivalence. Anyway, this has been a point of controversy within the the left for a long time, but I think you and I agree, Carlos, that from the point of view of what the Soviet Union was facing, the refusal of the Western democracies to come to their aid or to enter into a collective security and refusal to allow all the imperialists to unite against them at the same time, even though it may not have been explained the way we would prefer it to be explained, it certainly, from a military point of view, was an understandable move.
1: Yes, absolutely. And and 100%, it must have been incredibly confusing for people in North America and Western Europe. As you say, the international communist movement had been at the forefront of the struggle against fascism. The Soviet Union was the only major power to support the Spanish Republic against Franco. The international brigades were composed largely of communists. Incidentally, one of the people in charge of recruitment to the international brigades was a certain Josep Broz Tito, who would later, as you know, become leader of Yugoslavia. Communists were there in Cable Street in East London. Communists were there in Harlem. They were there in the Deep South fighting segregation, fighting lynching, fighting for civil and human rights for African Americans. So it's easy to understand how a military pact between the major socialist power and the major fascist power would be a source of incredible anguish and confusion. And you know, More or less, as soon as the pact was signed, by the end of um, August 1939, the communist parties essentially gave up their leadership of the anti-fascist struggle. And, and when World War II broke out in Europe in September 1939, they were framing it as an inter-imperialist war, much like World War I. And they were calling for revolutionary defeatism, much like the Bolsheviks had called for in World War One, So it was a total reversal of line. I mean, Harry Pollitt was forced to resign as General Secretary of the Communist Party of Great Britain because he supported the war against the Nazis. And you know this is perhaps the canonical example of the contradictions and the problems of the Comintern because on the one hand, it's been set up to support socialist revolutionary struggle worldwide. On the other hand, it's considered by the capitalist world as a sort of arm of Soviet diplomacy. So in September 1939, the Soviets needed to demonstrate to Germany that they're committed to non-aggression. Otherwise, what's the point in a pact? <laughs> but you know, that's not a consideration that can easily be explained to the working class in London, Paris, or New York. So yes, the whole thing was handled badly, and, and I think it highlights some of the deep-rooted problems in the structure of the global communist movement, but also It was a genuinely very difficult situation to manage, and there were a few things going on at the time. But yeah, as you've said, the Soviet Union was completely isolated and without a lot of choices available to it. They knew a war was coming. You know, you can read their speeches and literature from the time. They understood the developing world political situation very well, much better, in fact, than than the Western powers did. They understood the significance of the Great Depression. They understood the significance of the rise of fascism. And since the early 1930s, they've been pushing for an alliance with the capitalist democracies against German fascism, against German expansionism. You you can read the memoirs of Maxim Litvinov, who was Soviet foreign minister for much of that time. You can read the memoirs of Ivan Maisky, who was the Soviet ambassador in London. And you can see that the Soviets were working relentlessly, day and night, to construct an alliance against Nazism. They joined the League of Nations in 1934. Lenin had referred to the League of Nations as a robber's den. They refused to join it, but they joined in 1934. They even talked about the importance of a strong League of Nations that would stand firm against aggression by one state against another, referring very obviously to the fascist countries. As late as September 1938, when Germany invaded Czechoslovakia, the Soviet Union offered to go to war to protect... Czech independence, as long as France also honoured its commitment to defend member states of the League of Nations, France, of course, refused. Even in March 1939, you know, six months before the outbreak of war in Europe, the Soviets called for a joint conference with Britain, with France, with Romania, with Poland. And this was obviously, you know, a last ditch attempt, a final attempt to form a common security alliance, and the French and British just flat out refused. You know, ultimately the Western powers had other ideas. Their policy of appeasement, of accepting and even encouraging German rearmament, of allowing German expansion was meant to push Hitler eastwards to satisfy his demand for colonies with the territories of the Soviet Union, you know, his much coveted Lebensraum. So, you know, the Soviet Union was betrayed by Britain and France, and the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact was a last-minute deal to avoid a German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1939 when they needed more time to prepare for war. You know They got 22 months of respite that allowed them to double the size of their armed forces, to shift huge parts of their industrial base to the east, thousands of miles from the front which meant that they were able to continue production, including weapons production, after the war started. So they used that time to upgrade and modernize their industry and their military equipment. You know, and and Stalin made a speech 11 or 12 days after Hitler invaded in June 1941. And he says, you know, people might ask, have we been duped? You know, how could the Soviet government have signed a a non-aggression pact with perfidious people like Hitler and Ribbentrop? Well, we got an extra year and a half of peace, and that gave us the opportunity to prepare our forces. And, and ultimately, you have to say, you know, as the saying goes, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, because the Soviets won the war, where France collapsed in days in the face of the Nazi war machine. Other countries didn't fare much better. You know, okay, with a bit of geographical help from the English Channel, Britain held a, an uneasy stalemate of sorts but it certainly wasn't on the cusp of defeating Germany. The Soviets defeated the Nazis, Europe and Asia were liberated from fascism at incredible cost in terms of death, suffering and destruction. But, you know, they won and you can only shudder at the thought of what might have happened if they hadn't. Yes, you know, we've had some terrible fallout in the global left as a result of the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, but I strongly suspect that the fallout would have been infinitely worse had it not taken place.
0: Yeah. Very important argument. So the Soviets start after the non-aggression pact with Germany to rapidly intensify war production, other kinds of industrial production, the production of tanks and planes, obviously preparing for the coming war, also moving the factories from the west to the east so that in the event of a German invasion, obviously they would have only done that in preparation for a German invasion and the dilemma, the contradiction, the sort of ugly dialectic of the war, the contradictions that are within themselves and also not resolvable really short of war, uh, they continue to manifest. So after the non-aggression pact is signed, in a way, the Soviets are out of the picture for German calculations for the moment. And Germany then not having to worry about Foes on two fronts, the East and the West, which is what the Soviets were proposing to Britain and France and the United States. Like if there was a united front between the capitalist democracies and the Soviet Union, Hitler would not be able to focus all of his attention on one front or another front. Germany would have its forces divided, and the West rejects that. So the Soviets say, "Well, we we're going to sign this non-aggression pact with our enemy." That takes the pressure off us. We can use the period before now and when the war starts to build up. And for Hitler, it's also a big advantage. The non aggression pact is a big advantage because now Hitler doesn't have to worry about the Soviet Union and launches the invasion of other countries in Western Europe. And as I mentioned in the beginning or close to the beginning, in the case of France, France falls like within days and weeks. There's no real resistance from the French bourgeoisie. Even during World War II, the French generals are fighting mostly in North Africa for French colonies. And it's the communist led armed resistance movements inside of France that are given the leadership. But, you know, once Hitler invades France and Stalin and the Soviets see that France fell so quickly, that had to sound alarm bells for the Soviet leadership because if Hitler was able to easily capture Western Europe, which happened, that would mean that the advantage of the non-aggression pact kind of goes away because having conquered Western Europe, Hitler could turn back again to the east towards the Soviet Union. So the Soviets used the time to build up and build up their industry and their war production. Hitler takes advantage to basically take over all of continental Europe. So it doesn't really end the danger of war. It simply postpones it. So Germany is stronger by June 1941 and the Soviets are stronger. And then the German invasion happens. I don't want to talk more about that now because we'll talk in our next episode about World War II. And Most importantly, its aftermath, the beginning of the so called Cold War, or what we're going to call the global class war. But let's leave it on this, Carlos. In that war that Germany initiates against the Soviet Union in June 1941, 27 million people in the Soviet Union give their lives. Maybe it's 26 million. The Soviet government didn't really give the full numbers for a long time. I think they didn't want to completely reveal the weakness that would be caused by such a profound setback. But at the end of the day, at Stalingrad, uh, the Soviets defeat against all odds the Nazi invasion, and then they launch the counteroffensive that liberates Europe from fascism and creates new governments in the Eastern and Central Europe, which eventually align themselves with the Soviet Union. And that begins the new era of what is called the Cold War, the global class struggle. We're going to talk about that, Carlos Martinez, next time. I want to thank you again for this discussion. We want to encourage everyone who's going to keep following our conversations, and we hope more and more people will we know there's a lot of interest to get your book the end of the beginning by carlos martinez so read the book and you can get if you get it right now carlos if people get it and read it by the time we have our follow-up episodes they will have read your book and they will be on even firmer footing to understand the context of our conversations carlos martinez thank you so much thank you so much good chat You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 PM Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners.